I'm Jason Bailey-Losh, and you're listening to Seeing is Forgetting, conversations on contemporary art and culture in Los Angeles and beyond. Today's guest is a really funny person and someone that I've gotten to know a lot better over the past year. Christina Catherine Martinez is a stand-up comedian who hails from the art world originally. She was a director at a gallery here in town, and she still writes on an active basis about art in L.A. I don't know what I expected when we started talking about comedy, but what I didn't expect was to see the parallels between art and comedy or writing comedy in general, and the correlation between allowing the flexibility in your work to help the audience get inside and participate in what's sort of going on. It activates the piece. And same with comedy. The comedy needs to be flexible, just like art. And re-listening to this episode during the editing process, I forgot how good the conversation was and how easy it was to talk to Christina. So, here's Christina. Christina Catherine Martinez. Yes. Christina, welcome to the studio. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I was just doing my special podcast. Wait, your special podcast? What do you mean? It's uh, it's not a real podcast. It's literally just a voice I do that I call like a podcast for one. And it's me talking to my boyfriend in a funny <laughs> voice. And it's a way of like us telling our, me telling our story to him. And, but it gives me like the distance of like a, a bit so I don't get too vulnerable and it's me just doing an old lady voice as if I'm recording a podcast in the future that's about our relationship. <laughs> How does that go over? I mean, he loves it. It's just I'm like, oh, well, you know, I knew he was the one <laughs> when I, I broke wind <laughs> and he didn't mind. This was before breaking wind was outlawed. So the joke is that there's hints that like everything in the future was outlawed and it hints that this maybe. I don't know. My lover is long dead and I live some, in some sort of like terrifying post-apocalyptic fascist regime. So it's about our love, but it's also about um, the decline of Western Wait, so how did we... Okay, so what was the thing you brought up with him before? Like, why did you bring the voice up? Why were you doing the podcast for one? I was just doing it right before I came here. And that just like popped into your head right now. Yeah, we just did it in the restaurant. We can edit all this out. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. So we were, before we got on air, and yeah. uh, okay, once again, if you listen to the show, you know I like to give a little bit of background on how I know people. Mm -hmm. You and mm -hmm. I met not through your boyfriend, Santi. No. Well, like I said, I was doing some research on Justine Curland, and that's how I found the podcast. That's right. Because you had her on. We had this conversation. I think I may have been inebriated yeah. when we were actually talking. But that's fine. And then so we kind of just became internet acquaintances and aware yeah, of Yeah, we were other. like Instagram friends. We were Instagram friends. And then um, oddly enough, the night that we met, it was the night of an opening. And I, I told you that I was <laughs> I was in a really bad mood and I didn't, I should have stayed But you home. came in with Santi. Yeah, I did. So we were introduced because we were uh, friends from afar. Mm -hmm. It was one of those weird things. I never know how to actually approach people on those. You were like, great about it. I had been drinking a little. So it was like, it didn't, like that boundary was sort of cut off. Yeah. And it was... Uh, 
It was a nice evening, right? It was really nice. No, it was perfect. I was actually kind of in, I was in a bad mood and I didn't, I should have stayed home, but I felt, you know, the pull of those, you know, the kind of social imperatives that happen when you're involved in the art world or the comedy world. Well, and there's a need to go do it too. If you right. want to stay, you got to be a participant in like conversations when you don't want to. Right. But then this wouldn't, this conversation wouldn't be happening if I didn't make myself go out. Cause I remember. That's true. Before, with, before he even had a chance to introduce us, I was about to walk in and you grabbed me by the shoulders and said, <laughs> we, you, we've never met, we're in. Instagram, I'm Jason. And <laughs> and you were just had such you were just so like forward and and bright about and it. In your face. But I don't I don't mind that. It, it instantly put me in a good mood. So I'm good. I'm glad we met that. You know, way. it was really nice. And we had a great conversation the whole evening too. I mm-hmm. remember being you were the you always have like when you go into these um art uh, openings, you have like a fallback. Mm-hmm. like where you can go mingle with somebody and then you know if like the conversation is dead or you need an escape, you always have the person. Yeah. So for me, I don't think I told you this. You were my escape that night. Like I'd keep going back to you. Oh, I like that. Yeah, we, because you were the easy one to talk to, <laughs> to have a conversation with and I knew it wasn't going to be like a hassle. Mm-hmm. So know? how did you get out of other ones? Was it just like, this is... I grabbed you by the shoulders when oh, you walked in. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you sure read a book of manners. <laughs> by just harassing people when yeah, they like yeah. walk up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it just works out somehow. The other thing we were talking about is we will probably be laughing a decent amount on the show today because we both like, like to laugh. laugh. But also I think there's a there's a common bond here too where we both like to laugh at our own jokes. Yeah. I don't want to. I, I think the the coolest thing that any comedian can do is just like never laugh. I see that in your your performances. Okay, we, we didn't even explain this why I asked you to come be on the show. Mm-hmm. You're very funny. Thank you. You're a comedian. Yes. And I thought it would be really interesting. This before I saw your performances mm-hmm. or knew much about your performance. Mm-hmm. I was like, I need to have a comedian on the show. I think that would be a great idea because it would just mix up what we were talking about. But mm-hmm. then you pursued it in a really nice way. You were like, look, take a look at this stuff. And mm-hmm. you sent me videos to begin with. And mm-hmm. then you were like, I'm doing, I'm putting on, I'm putting on a show. And the show is aesthetical relations. Yeah. Do you want to explain what it is? Yeah, it's a few different things. It's it's just it's a comedy show, but it loosely has the format of a late night style talk show. That's what it is in my mind. I think in the beginning it did. And then it got really loosey goosey. Totally. Toward the end, which is great. Which is great. So I think that that format is just uh, a starting point. Mm -hmm. You're the MC. And I host it and I produce it. And so I'm on unlike most comedy shows where it's just a line of comedians coming and going or acts coming and going. I am on stage the whole time. And there is also a musician on stage the whole time. Which is pretty intense. Yeah, it kind of acts like the house band. The house band this night was singing Sinatra songs. Yeah, he was singing like jazz standards and stuff, which is not normally what that guy does. It was pretty good. He has a beautiful voice. It was really weird. It like set a really strange tone (laughs) because everybody, I think they thought it was going to be a joke to begin with. Yeah. It wasn't a joke. The show, this one in particular, how it turned out, which I think was the best one I've ever done. It was excellent, by the way. Before we go any further, like... (laughs) I walked into that thinking like, oh, fuck, I got to go to a, I got to go to a performance and I hate going to performances because usually there some of you'll hit like a gym in there every once in a while, but mm-hmm. most of the time it's tedious. I even, I got a seat. I was one of the first people there. Yeah. You got there early. That was nice. Yeah. I, well, I take the, I always take the standard of like, you never know how many people are going to show up mm-hmm. and your friends are always standing there waiting for people to come through the door. So you might as well give them somebody to talk to and like really steam to begin with. Because I want that. It's very considerate for someone who's not into performance. You have (laughs) a very considerate stance as an audience member. No, because in comedy, there's a thing called comedy people time. And it's kind of 
What is that? It means that shows never start on time because everyone understands that everyone is late. Uh, and I've I've gone to shows that literally start an hour late. And I'm, I feel bad because I invite friends who do show up on time. Well, is it is it because people are backstage like, are they drinking? Are they just late for the performance? Or why is it? Are they waiting for people to fill a room? What's the reason for that? Uh, I'm sure it's all of those. It's waiting for people to fill a room. It's sometimes waiting on comics who, you know, if they're working really hard, might have two or three other spots that night. Some people characterize it as an L.A. thing where we just... You think it's just L.A.? I don't know. I haven't done... Okay, so we've got so much ground to cover on this. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is about comedy. Also, it's about art. And one of the other reasons I asked you to be on the show is because you have a background in art Mm -hmm. and writing, and it comes through in the comedy. But we were going through, we were explaining what the show was, and I interrupted you. I'm still thinking about what the show is. That's why I said it was... How many have you done? This was the fifth one. I did four last year. Wow. Yeah. And it's downtown. Is it always been in the same spot? It's always been in that same spot. The last one I did last year, I did at Steve Turner Gallery in Hollywood because uh, his director at the time was a big comedy fan and we had some comedian friends in common and they have that beautiful rooftop courtyard above the gallery and they just wanted to make use of it for the summer. They wanted to have programming. So and they the, asked me to stage the show there. The normal spot is, is an abandoned sort of flower shop downtown. <laughs> yes. It is a warehouse called Basic Flowers that is owned by an experimental theater company called Four Larks. One of the members of the company is this actor, really wonderful actor, who is also a comedian and his girlfriend is a comedian. So they just kind of program comedy events around the theater schedule. In between the times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's why it's not as as regular as I would like it to be. But it had like bleacher seating and it was really like it was a good space for what it was. Yeah, the space is beautiful and that's all part of the set. And it's run down, by the way. And the bathroom is downstairs. It looks like a murder bathroom. (laughs) Like it's totally open and vacant. It's it's definitely a murder bathroom. And for me, the, the space, the show is already confusing and a lot of people don't know what to expect. I think that space kind of signals some sort of DIY punky vibe that, yeah. to, that to me provides a buffer if things go wrong technically. Which so you feel like if you, you have an out, somewhere. because if you're in the forum right. and you give, on, you give a mm-hmm. shitty fucking show, mm-hmm. it's on you. And it's not even shitty. I think part of a lot of comedy is dealing with things going wrong and frankly just not being afraid of occupying a, lim- a space of failure but on a technical level, to me, it's 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 really important that those things don't go wrong to an extent that they become distracting. Well, you're sort of a perfectionist. Is that is that obvious? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot. Even in, I was thinking about this before you came on. How, mm-hmm. how would I describe the comedy that you do? I actually took notes during your show. Oh, the, during Aesthetical Relations. I did. I love, you know that I actually, because this is the first time also, and I'm, maybe at Steve Turner was the first time I'd actually done that show with anyone other than a comedy audience in mind at all. Oh, really? Yeah. And you know, when I started doing comedy, it was a secret. Like I thought that this was something that I could Because not, you were coming out of the art world. Right. And for me, when I started doing comedy years ago, I mean, I did theater and all that stuff in high school. I didn't really pick up comedy again until three or four years ago, I took improv classes. And for me, it was just a way to get a little respite from the gravitas of the art world. And so I kept those things very separate. And for a couple of years, no one knew I did comedy at all. And I was on the improv. Wait, while you were in the art world, you were doing comedy at the same time? Yes. While I I, I got really into it while I was a director of a gallery in downtown. Okay. Well, we're going to go into the art world stuff too. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But one of the things, and I, I've got to explain what type of comedy you do, because I okay. think it's it's integral and it's like really important to 
everything else, everything sort of like comes together in this really nice way. But I was trying to find a way to describe this without like you redoing a set or something and have people understand what you talk about, but it's just very smart. Mm-hmm. It's very thoughtful, but I was taking notes of some mm-hmm. of your performances online mm-hmm. as anyone can. I was just trying to like write down things as I was seeing them happen. But oh, this is great. This is interesting. Yeah. So um, this is the stuff I don't want to do. <laughs> really? I want to hear your thoughts and then I will tell you a little okay, bit about. Okay. Well, let me tell you, let me tell you the, the actual quote that I took out of your show that I thought was just so smart. And it was like a one line that I thought sur- surmised a lot of the conversation. And it was, can you be a foot soldier for the avant-garde in an H&M dress? Right. And I <laughs> thought it was so, <laughs> but it's so it captures that whole feeling in this one sentence that is not easily done. And to me, that's what I say. It's, it's obvious to me that you're a writer. Oh, thank you. Because the, the stage performance and everything else and the, the things you're putting together are not something that are completely off the cuff. Mm-hmm. You, it never is. No, no stand-up comedian is completely no, off the cuff. No, but you made it seem casual in the mm-hmm. conversation, but still it's, it seems sort of witty, but also very smart. Thank so you. it's good because it's true. And well, this I'm, is well, this is what I was saying here. So <laughs> th- this these are part of the notes. Is there's a lot of conversations about life choices mm-hmm. and the choices that people make in their lives and the directions that they sort of end up because of those life choices. And it's a lot about a lot about authentic experiences, though. Too, it's like stuff that everybody can relate to, but not in a dumbed down way all the time. Yeah. Some of it, some of it's dumb. Are you talking about the video with the the baking supplies? No, I, I hadn't even gotten to that. Okay. You're talking uh, about what my opening set at the show. Well, it wasn't even an opening set. Like when I was watching the videos online and mm-hmm. I watched like two, what was really interesting was seeing you give the same set yeah. twice to two different audiences. Uh-huh. I had known this the first time. I think I saw Dennis Leary in Omaha. Mm-hmm. And I thought he was so funny. And I went back the second night. And I remember being so, I was really young. I was so surprised that it was the exact same set. So that's comedy. I, I'm, I was surprised at A, how many people don't know that. And I actually, that was a realization I came to much later than I probably should have. And even when I started doing. That they repeat? Yeah, that it's all intensely very rehearsed and. Choreographed. Certainly, even down to, I'm sure, as you noticed, some of the gestures and pauses and beats. Well, of course. But so how do you, when you're in that situation, but the thing that was really interesting too is seeing you riff off the two different audiences and your pace changed in each one of those. Mm -hmm. And the pace changed based on the laughter and where you're getting the laughs and how you actually adjust to it. Is it often that you're able to see those two things come together? So if somebody's doing a set twice Mm -hmm. and you can see, because it's full of, it's full of like high marks and low marks. There's mm-hmm. failures in there where the crowd doesn't get it mm-hmm. and you have to adjust your, your set to figure out what's going to work with the crowd. And there's ones that actually work really well. I, I'm wondering, like, I don't see that often. I don't think people are that like, open about their process. They're not that forthcoming. Yeah. Well, I've had, I feel really ambivalent about the fact that I just have two videos of the same set online. And frankly, one of them is mostly there for practical purposes, which is to submit to comedy festivals. And which stuff one like do you that. think is the better one with the red, with the red background or the one with the, I usually use the one with the black background just because production wise, it's clearer. Yeah. You can tell what I'm saying more, but you could tell that the people were having a better time and there was a lot more laughs in the second one. Well, but you know, it was funny. They were laughing at different places. Yeah. And this is what, this is a wonderful thing that I've come to terms with about stand-up material because that whole set 
or peace, as I jokingly call it, was born out of me having to confront the disingenuousness of stand-up as performance and realizing that it is intensely rehearsed material. It's a text. That's what people, they call it writing. When you go to open mics, it's working and it's writing, but it's, it's completely oral. So in a way, it's about creating material for yourself that is at least true enough and fun enough that you can feel it every time. And good material, I think, and I love that stand-up is called material, even though yeah. it's, it's a type of writing, but you wouldn't call it a text because good material is flexible enough to be adaptable to different audiences. And I don't write the way most, uh, a lot of stand-up comedians write, which is like, you know, uh, they have this fishbowl of jokes in their heads that are, you know, maybe 30 seconds, a minute long, and they can kind of, we- and they kind of weave them together as they're going. Yeah. Um, I have that a- would be so hard. It's really difficult. And I think maybe this has become, this is born out of me coming from a traditional or a journalistic writing background in that they're like full pieces. So that particular set, there's only like two or three minutes for me to like play around with at the beginning. And then once the apron comes out, I'm making this sound way crazy. You know, that whole joke of sorts is, is just an eight minute long bit. Right. In the beginning that you always start, well, not always, these two that I saw, mm-hmm. uh, tired of finding the poetry and the everyday. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's a very, but it's like, say it like that and not like you're joking, like in a witty thing. And it's a very earnest point to come up and like start a, start, start a bit with that. Yeah. And there's a lot of moments throughout the entire piece that are very, they're very heartfelt and earnest, but in the way that they're sort of approached. And to me, it seemed like it was a very nice way to let the audience into some very like serious subject matter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And there was a lot about being a woman. I don't know if you remember this at the show. And I think this is so, I do, there are certain jokes I have that are not even really jokes. They're kind of one liar liners that aren't you know, tautologically funny. They don't have their own inner structure, but they're funny just because of the state of the world. It's just real. Right. So the saddest thing is that right now, the joke that I make that tends to get the most laughs is just me saying, being a woman is probably the worst thing that's ever happened to me. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess it's funny because it's sort of like the the rhythm of it depends on making it seem like I'm going to actually say something else. But but yeah, no, right. But then that comes out and you're like, oh, fuck. Right. <laughs> this and, is you horrible. Know, maybe like in 2007, that wouldn't be funny. But like right now, it's just it's just a recognition. I think it would be funny back then even too. But I think <laughs> that it's funnier now because of everything that's going on. You often talk to the women in the crowd too. And it elicits a response that is really that heartfelt conversation sort of back and forth. Like you're having, I, lo- a- I love that. I love that. And I you think, do it on purpose. I mean, this is, this is the weird paradoxical tension that is so exciting about stand up in that, that, that whole set it's, it's all true. Like that is my, that is my goddamn worldview in like 10 minutes. And on some level, I feel like I'll never get another 10 minutes because that's all I got. I just, I believe all of that. And it's like, you know, Maggie Nelson talks about in the Argonauts, how it's like, I love you is she compares it to like Bar's metaphor of like the ship that gets built anew every time. Everyone who says, I love you, it means something different, even though it's kind of the same vessel. That's how I feel about stand-up material. And that particular material, that particular set is the thing that's closest to me finding a way to inhabit it for real every time I say it, because that set is about my anxieties about the authenticity or lack thereof 
of what stand-up comedy actually is. Well, and you use a lot of $3 words in there too, where, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like there, there really is. You're not talking down to an audience. No. At all. You're talking on an equal level, but you're not treating them like they're stupid in any way, shape or form. This is oddly enough, I get way more nervous and maybe it's because of the separation that I've maintained for so long that I mentioned earlier. I get a lot more nervous doing comedy. Wait, for, separation between? Between my, the art world or like my art life and my comedy life. I get really nervous doing comedy for art people or smart people. Really? Oh yeah, I hate it. I, I love. Do you think you're expected to perform a certain way or like give a performance that shows your intellect or? Maybe, I think maybe because there's an assumption that people are expecting something smarty or arty or which I think is just like a dangerous way to think about it. I think, you know, I have something of a reputation. It's like, Oh yeah. Christine is the smart comedian or the arty comedian, which I think can often just be a brand. But like I really, well, of course it's a brand and you, <laughs> well, but you, you talk about that in one of your sets too. I know. Branding. That's all we have. There's no jobs. There's just outlets for charisma. It's get that money. It's totally true. <laughs> It's super think, true. Like it's sort of amazingly yeah. accurate. But you know, I, I've done that set literally at a coffee shop in, in El Sereno to like a bunch of stoned cholos and they laughed and like, that feels so good. That feels better. Because it plays off of different audiences or what? Yeah. It, Cause it feels like, and maybe they're not getting it as deeply as I intended and they're not deconstructing. But that does, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because it's comedy. And, and well, it doesn't matter because they genuinely had a laugh out of it too. Yeah. And in the art world, I feel like it's the same thing in that if the person who is giving you something like a piece of art or comedy and it's honest and it comes from a place that is like from something they feel, mm -hmm. it reads honest and people can read it right away if it's not. Yeah. I think even if people aren't following every word I say, they can read my energy and my, and I do rely a lot on a certain energy in my standup or, or whatever I do. And when it's not there, like sometimes there's a lot of awkward pauses too. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote that down as well too. I was like, but they're like smart. Uh, you're waiting. You actually give the audience a, a break to sort of breathe. It's, that was something I had to learn to do because when I started, I was so nervous. That you just like ran through it? Yeah, or that I was so afraid of silence or, or not getting laughs that I had my sets completely composed to the second. So I'm like, oh, I, I have 10 minutes. This is my thing that I'm going to say. And then people said that like, well, A, you know, you're, you're stepping up, like people do laugh and then you're stepping over them. And then, so people feel like they're missing something and then it actually makes you get less laughs because yeah. then they just want to listen. Part of it is, you know, being more comfortable with your material, having it so memorized that it can almost become spontaneous and that you can. Well, this is acting too, right? Oh, totally. So know your lines in acting and then you can just sort of riff off anything else. Yeah. And then you can let the energy it's not even riffing because like that, that bit is pretty well. Is well, pretty you just well live it. Yeah. You, you actually live the piece. So this is so corny, but I just, I live it every time, Jason. <laughs> I had an old, I'm going to tell this story because I hate this woman. <laughs> uh, I had an old boss that I worked for in DC and whenever I had something go horribly wrong, like it, the, the greatest example of this is I was getting divorced and I walked in and I was like, look, I'm going to need some time off because uh, things are sort of horrible right now. I'm getting divorced. And she's like, I'm living it, Jason. I'm living it. Like oh, what? Like it's McDonald's. Yeah. Like, well, no, yes. It's like, I'm loving it. Yes. <laughs> um, no, anything you would say to her, her, she wouldn't, her showing of empathy was saying that she has just as bad of a problem as you do. I'm mm -hmm. living it. 
I'm living it. But that's the tricky thing about empathy is there's a line at which uh, empathy could just become like a show, like a, a show of empathy. And, it's so false. And then, and then it just completely undoes itself, which is why it just still blows my mind that, that stand-up comedy succeeds in any way. Maybe this can lead into like how I really got into comedy, but I think about like six months into it. Doing I'm your doing stand-up, it, yeah. starting stand-up in, in earnest, meaning like going to open mics like every single night. And, and starting to Is get, it really every single night? I did that for about a year. Yeah. Every, That's insane. Yeah. Well, I quit my job and I broke up with my boyfriend. Okay. So real quick, <laughs> before we get into this, you were a director of a gallery, uh-huh. Nicodeme Gallery, right? Mm-hmm. In LA here. Right. And you were, and you reviewed stuff all the time too. You were a writer. Right. So 2011, I think is when I started writing about art and it was- What were you doing before that? Are you from LA or where yes, are you from? Yes, born and raised from You're, Boyle Heights- where all the art galleries are supposed to be getting kicked out of. <laughs> Do you have a feeling on that? I'm I'm very ambivalent. There's I understand the, the point of view of the people who live there or not. Well, I understand Both being sides. against gentrification. I think there's a little bit of misguidance on like what actually stops gentrification because the yeah, I don't that, think it's like kicking out art galleries, right? And even if it was, it's you know these galleries don't own those buildings, and so those yeah. people don't care. Yeah, and one's gallery is going to leave something even. You know, more horrible is going like to go into that an, space. Yeah, an artisanal baby. They'll knock it down and put up condos. Yeah, like an artisanal baby cheese gap, <laughs> like pottery, <laughs> color me this type place. And I'll say that, you know, my grandmother is fortunate enough to own her house. She lives like off Cesar Chavez, like right down from Mission Road. Oh, yeah. And so it's kind of worked out for her. But obviously, if she wasn't fortunate enough to own her house, it would be a much different story. Right. She's very old. She's 80. Six. Well, my question on this, though, is, too, is that a lot of these galleries aren't opening up in residential districts. They're opening up in commercial districts where there's mm-hmm. a bunch of warehouses and people don't actually live within walking distance of some of those spaces. Mm-hmm. They say it's within our it's within our doorsteps. So do they think that opening up in this warehouse district is going to expand into the residential, essentially? I think it's this broader idea, which is not totally untrue, but it's it, there's these tenuous correlations between the, the big picture of, I think, how people characterize gentrification is that, you know, it's usually working class artists kind of moving. White in, artists. Yeah, yeah. Moving into a space with uh, immigrant families and working class families because that's where they can afford to live. And I'm, I'm honestly just kind of parroting general narratives that I feel like are in the air about how this works. Then that kind of gets almost fetishized by certain developers or people. Right. People see some sort of change happening. And what gentrification really is, is people opening businesses that don't actually cater to the, the pop- community, the community that it, that it's in. Or hire people from the community to actually work in those businesses when they open them up either. Right. And I actually had this conversation with the Lyft driver the other day because I live in Highland Park and this guy lived in Highland Park for like 20 years. And he was like, I mean, he's it's like, I get it. I mean, there's, you know, poor artists come in and then, and then other people come in and they think that like, they need fancy coffee or whatever, but they're just poor too. Like they don't need $5 coffee. And I'm like, yeah, you get it. But it's complicated. Everyone asks me my opinion that I have some sort of expertise, some sort of read on it because I grew up in the area. I'm really ambivalent. And I think it's, it's complicated. Like, of course I would love that, you know, there's a, the flip side is, you know, that house that I grew up in, you know, there were, we slept on the floor because there's drive by shootings. And now it's, it's nice that my, my cousins and my grandmother can don't walk, have to do that. Can walk around the neighborhood yeah, freely. Right. Like I said, I think it's a tough call. It's just like super complicated and we're, neither of us are probably the ones to answer. The reason we got onto this though was because I was working there at Nicodem. And before that, yeah. so 
Uh, I didn't go to grad school and I didn't finish undergrad until uh, later, until I was 28. Uh, during that time, like 2010 to 2013, while I was finishing school, I started writing about art uh, for Art Slant. And Andrew Berardini, who's a writer and a very dear friend of mine, just gave me my first job. No shit. Because at the time we were just neighbors and I was working at uh, Fred Siegel, the fancy clothing store on yeah. Melrose. And I just I- went there to get some clothes for work. <sighs> Cost me a small fortune. Mm-hmm. What were you doing there? What were you selling? Small fortunes. Like, what do you Like, doing? no, what department were you in? What I was in the in? men's department. So we had... Downstairs or upstairs? Downstairs. And this was, I, I think this was before the crash when everyone got laid off and they kind of changed their business model. I think the, their whole price point is kind of lowered. It was very, very fancy. Are you kidding me? No. No, no, no. I, I promise you, you... You think it's lower? Really? I promise you it was more expensive like 10 years ago. That is insane because it is so expensive right now. Like to the point where it's almost unattainable. Um, so sorry, I was just, I was just, <laughs> I was just wandering a little bit because I, I, I to go back even further. I grew up in a very religious household. I did a lot of theater and 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 silly stuff in high school. And my parents were sort of supportive of it, but then it was never the the idea that this could be a viable. Well, that's how my parents were too. Right, was the, never even entered. You had to have a real job on the side. Well, I, th- I think they had this idea of me becoming intellectual and they really wanted me to like major. They wanted me to major in philosophy. And were you, wait, how many siblings did you have? I have two older brothers. And what did they do? Um, they're fine. Did they go to college though? I mean, yes. So uh, what do they, what do they do though? My eldest brother, David, he studied computer science and he has this, he has a, his own IT business. So what the hell? He's a smart dude. Yeah. Like and- they didn't already have kids that were like, I think because my brothers are so smart on a on a different plane, and my they parents, wanted somebody who is like artsy smart. Yeah, my parents have definitely like are have an artistic streak, and that's the thing. What did your parents do? Um, my parents, uh, my mom has worked. At, I was homeschooled, so oh no way. My dad worked. Holy at, shit! This explains so much, doesn't it? <laughs> so when we were little, my dad, you know, my parents had three kids by the time they were twenty seven. They got married at twenty. My mom was born in Mexico. My dad was the first in his family to be born here. They met. My, my dad was working at some menswear store in the Glendale Galleria. I think they both dropped out of college to get married and be with each other. They had three kids by the age 27. Who homeschooled, your mom or your dad? My mom did. And my dad, I think for a while, he supported the family by uh, working in the shoe department at Nordstrom. Holy shit. So it's funny because I guess we were super poor, if you can imagine. But homeschooling was... I homeschooled from uh, just through grade school. So up until. But this is the funny thing about being poor as a kid. You don't know it. Yeah, I didn't know I, it. We, I was super poor as a kid too. I didn't know it till I went to school and saw all the other shit the other kids yeah, had. Yeah, like when I when my mom wanted to buy me like Voights or something, yeah. like some off-brand shoe or. I think it was very, I mean, and even, and, and they definitely homeschooled us partly for religious reasons, but I think. What, were they Catholic or were they? Um What's funny, I think they both grew up Catholic and then rebelled by becoming Protestants. <laughs> <laughs> that has to be in your bit. You got to put that in there somewhere. I, I actually don't. There, I don't talk about being homeschooled in my bits. No, I meant the Catholic and rebelled and went to Protestant. <laughs> That's hilarious. I think it's just true. And um, <laughs> but man, she was, she was a great teacher and a great educator. And she's the reason why I became such a voracious reader at a young age. Really? Through osmosis, because she was teaching all of us, but my brothers were older. So I learned to read when I was like four right. because she was teaching my brothers and I was... Well, this is my daughter mm-hmm. does a heck of a lot better at all the things that my, she's doing math now. Yeah. Because my son is doing it. Yeah. You just pick it. You have to. 
Yeah. And they did it as for as long as they could. And I think after a while, it was just like my mom had to had, had to, to start work. working because they were out of money. So I went to, we went to public school. So what did she do? She, I think she had just had a string of random kind of, jobs, kind of, yeah, mid-level office jobs at like call centers. She, because she's bilingual, I think she did a lot of like bilingual customer service stuff for different phone Are companies. Are both of your parents Mexican? Mm-hmm. Where my mom has worked since I was in high school is um, she is an administrator of an IT department at a private Christian college in uh, Whittier. When I graduated high school, it was just kind of assumed that I would go there. To the college because you get a discount or something? Right. I lasted like... Oh, so you did go? Oh, yeah, I went. For like how long? A semester. (laughs) (laughs) I'm surprised it lasted a semester, actually. Well, it was because I... they're not going to listen to this. It's fine. It's because my roommate at the college, also I lived like 10 minutes away and I was like, I'm going, I'm, I'm going to have a normal school experience for you once. You wanted to get out of the house. Right. Like, yeah. Cause nothing was, nothing was normal. And I remember even um, going to public school is very surreal when you've never been. How, I, how old were you when you went? 12. I started in the oh, sixth that's grade. Fucking old. I went to, I went to the sixth and seventh grade and then I skipped to the eighth grade and went to high school. Wait, what? Well, because like when you're homeschooled, everything is so. Uh, Wait, so were you more advanced, or were you? Yeah. Well, it w- it was tricky because I'm also born in December, so I'm in that weird period where yeah, it's like a little bit older between grades. Yeah. But also that when you're homeschooled, you can have like very individual like curriculum. So I was like very ahead in some subjects and like regular in others. So when I started school, we honestly weren't sure which well, yeah where you grade like I fit. should start. So what were you good at? Um, I was actually really good at math up until my no junior shit. year of high school. And then what happened? I don't know. I think I just hit the ceiling. It like caught up with you. No, my senior year, I almost dropped uh, dropped out. But that was because like I read a bunch of Kafka and I decided like nothing mattered and I nearly just like flunked out of well, high How school. did you fucking find Kafka? It, like for me in the middle of Iowa, I didn't know who the fuck well, well, Kafka we was. We live really, it's really, I mean, I went to school in Whittier, which is very close to Los Angeles. So, like, so you're very like the, informed. Yeah, it's like the Jersey, New York you know, thing where it's just suburbs, but you're so close to a city that like you find a lot of stuff. But it's just interesting that like you were in a junior year, you were like reading that shit. Mm-hmm. That was the furthest thing from my mind. Also, I was a boy. I was very pretentious in high school. Were you? Yeah. I wanted to be really like well-read and. was That was your thing? Yeah. And I, I think maybe it had partly to do with. Uh, were you in theater and stuff then or not? Oh yeah. I did a ton of theater and oh. a ton of improv in high school. Improv. Yeah which is improv comedy. I know what it is. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> but it was funny that like that, that right after high school, that stopped because it was like, okay, that's your fun high school stuff. Now it's so like, so wait, how did you, so what did you do? Start doing for work? Okay. Well, I went to, because you have that gap between when you mm-hmm. finish college, like when you're 28 and when mm-hmm. you finish high school. So where, where was that? So after I dropped out of Biola university, I, after a semester, yeah, I, I had no idea what I wanted. And your parents were disappointed. Totally. Especially your mom. I think they were disappointed, but they also just realized that I had to figure some stuff out, which is great, which is good. And I had no idea what I wanted to do. I didn't think about it in a very, I didn't, I never thought about my career in a very strategic way. And I had this idea ingrained in my mind that like performing or acting wasn't a viable pursuit because generally it's not. Because generally it's not. You're going to like tooth and nail. It's like art. You went, by the way, you went out of like one horrible thing into another, like probably (laughs) more horrible thing. This is a a very real thought that I'd articulated to myself, which just sounds crazy now. When you were getting ready to transition? When I was like leaving my parents' house or when I was, uh, and and I think this has definitely left some sort of like Calvinist self-flagellating vestige of my religious upbringing. By the way, that's just like your performance right there with the, Mm -hmm. 
This. Sometimes it comes out. <laughs> we do what we can. I literally had this thought. And I remember my mom told me, she said something really nice at one point. She was like, you know, you're very smart. You can literally do anything you want. I think you're just going to have trouble deciding what that is. She's like, you just- Isn't that the goddamn truth? Mm-hmm. And I remember I always loved performing. I loved being an actor and I was so good at it. But I thought to myself, I literally thought, whatever it is that makes me a good actor is probably born of some deep-seated character flaw that I don't want to nurture. So I want to do something <laughs> like hard and monastic, like to writing. Challenge, to challenge yourself? I think I actually, I thought a lot about what I wanted to do do I was like for a while I wanted to be a fashion designer I wanted to like design books I wanted to be a painter and were those things difficult for you or were they easy for you uh, this is what I'm getting at because they were easy they were easy they were easy but I think to be great at any one of those things like you need to get to the point where I'm like you start to you learn enough about a thing to come up against your own ignorance and you have to confront that idea like do you love it enough to move past that and it was just me hitting that that moment with so many different pursuits. And I, and I always wrote, have this like medal from when I was in school. It was like some, uh, like an award. It was an award for writing. It was like this district wide competition called like the academic Olympics. And I had won in seventh grade, I'd won the top prize for writing amongst like all the schools in the district. So to me, that was like, Oh, here's some recognition. Maybe this means I should go in this direction. I just remember hearing stories I don't know if it was maybe just documentaries I'm watching online, but just realizing that there's this thing that happens to artists where they like lose their faculties. They have, they have a prime and then they're and then you're just going downhill. I don't know. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Your, your tits start sagging or you get arthritis and like whatever your medium is, like you can't wield it the way you did. And that was so terrifying. So the idea of writing was so appealing because I liked the image of, of the writer being someone who didn't work with the medium. And so ostensibly if it's just your mind and your linguistic faculties. Yeah. But then you look at somebody like Rosalind Krauss and she had a, was she have, she have a stroke. I mean, that's, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's a danger no matter what, but I think like, but it's the same type of thing. It's the same thing, but it just felt because I think a physical, you think it felt less real. It felt like less real because it was not tied to mere physical decline or just like the process of aging. I just thought that that was really cool. The idea that like this, I could try to be a writer and then like only get better and better until the day I died. I feel like this is why people play golf. <laughs> people play golf because they have too much time on their hands no, it's and like, not enough imagination. No, 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 no. And if it's, you play golf, if your loved ones play golf, golf is literally the worst thing that's ever happened to Western civilization. Really? You feel that strongly about it? No. Yeah, it's just a statement. I don't care one way it's or the other. It's just a other. statement. You're very ambivalent about... Uh, I'm ambivalent about everything. I've been told uh, some moon lady read so my... Wait, how did yeah. that, wait, no, do your moon lady thing. What is this? Oh, it's some moon lady read my star chart, and apparently I was born under a, a large morass of competing celestial and bodies. A, an ambivalent moon? Yeah. <laughs> I'm an ambivalent moon. What were you going to say? I was going to, how do you, how does your significant other ever deal with you if you're ambivalent about everything? I don't know. I was with someone for about eight years. You know what was funny was mm -hmm. watching the stand up and I don't mean to cut you off on your- No, please. I'm I'm going off on who knows what. No, no, no. I am too. But you did two different bits where one was you're dealing with the X and one is you're dealing with the new. (laughs) Isn't that great? It was so fantastic. You're like- (laughs) 
the this motherfucker like I just got out of this thing and it wasn't even like mean it was just sort of like oh people get so sad that's like one of my favorite jokes yeah it's a, it's a good fucking what was the joke there's a really common setup where people you know they set up their their breakup or their single jokes by saying I just got out of a relationship and it's just a very practical statement because it's it's just it's a an way, easy lead in it's too. just a way it's to get into easy. a joke but I just thought it was so common that I'm like how do I not play that say that bit yeah. So Wait. instead of saying, I just got a relationship, I say that I spent the greater part of the last decade <laughs> trapped in a fart blanket full of reluctant foot rubs and charged silence. And I, I love that people who are, you know, the whole point of like single jokes is it makes people kind of feel bad for you and it's a little self-deprecating. <laughs> what I love about that is it makes people in relationships like uncomfortable. Yeah, because they're totally like, that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. like Well, and also this is the polar opposite of me calling you smart the entire uh, interview, by the way, it's like that, that dumbed down, funny fart blanket joke mm -hmm. mixed in with all the really intuitive, like there's this weird sort of crazy mix of shit going on that whole time. <laughs> and you're like, she just said a fart blanket. Like I, I cracked up, but for me, it was just like, it was right on point, but you gave the breakup joke. Right. And then but what's funny is that the, the video that you see with the red background, that was literally the day before Santi asked me to be his girlfriend. And he had been in Italy for like 10 days and we hadn't seen each other. So I, you don't know this, uh -huh. but I admit, so Santi is a curator. Right. And he's genuinely just a really nice dude. And he came in for, he wanted to do a studio visit. And he was yeah. very, very generous. Like he was just like, hey, let's do a studio visit. And we had a really wonderful studio visit. And I was thinking about this today when you were coming over just because of mm -hmm. your guys' relationship. And I didn't have a lot of really good shit in the studio. I had one of those moments where it was just like, there was some okay stuff. And he gave me a really nice, thoughtful studio visit. Mm -hmm. He posted a very mediocre photo of what the studio visit was online. Mm -hmm. I appreciated that. But during that conversation, he's like, I just, I met somebody. <laughs> And he's I, like, no, you got to let me tell this. Okay, like okay. he was like, I met somebody and I don't remember where this came out of, but he was really excited. And he was like, I met somebody. She's really wonderful. And we had a good 20 to 30 minute conversation during my studio visit about you <laughs> without me knowing who the fuck you were. <laughs> and then we went and we got drinks over at Tex and we sat and we talked about you over at Tex too. And we had a conversation about you and I was like, so what is she like? Like, what's the deal? And she's like, well, she's like a comedian. And he like showed me a picture of you. And okay. he's like, I've got to go to Italy, but I'm going to be gone for a long time. Yeah. And I remember him saying that you guys talked while you were gone. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah. But that was really meaningful to him. And a really nice, because I talked to him afterwards too. It was just, it was super it's sweet. Such a, I know it was a very corny whirlwind romance, but basically, you know, we met, we flipped out and- spent like the first 10 days just like with each other. Nonstop, right? Like nonstop. This is what he was saying. But then he had to leave for 10 days. Which is sort of great. Which is circumstantially what, yeah, it's very ideal. But I think I was really, and maybe he was too. Like we were both, I was very scared because we just had this crazy whirlwind romance and I didn't know. If it was going to last. When yeah. Came what back, was going to be there when he came back? I like forgot what he looked like. You know what I mean? Well, that's a thing. I forget yeah. what everybody looks like. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember, and what's funny is that we have so many mutual friends. Um, I can't, so how did you guys meet? Oh, okay. This is great. We met at Andrew Berardini's birthday party. Uh, really? Yeah. It was Andrew Berardini and Liz Glenn had a birthday party and. Liz Glenn, the artist. Mm-hmm. Andrew, who you mentioned earlier, right. is a writer. He's a writer. It was at Liz Glenn's studio and he literally just 
I remember hey, Santi I, or Andrew? Santi. I was, uh, I had just gotten to the, I actually, I just had a show. I just did a stand up show and I was, yeah. yeah. And I was going to the party late and I get there and I just, you know, say hi to the birthday boy. And while I'm talking to Andrew, Santi just comes up and he greets Andrew cause they're friends with a big, you know, and he's, he's very gregarious. Yeah. And he's very like, Hey, how are you? And then he turns to me and does the sort of like, Hey, how are you? What's going on? Good to see you. Like and, you'd never met him. Right. I ne- so I, did you call bullshit on him? I, well, you know, in the art world, like you meet people all the time and you've totally had conversations with people that you don't remember meeting yeah. five times. So I was like, do, I was like, do we know each other? And he was like, we do now. Um, <laughs> he's going to love that I'm saying this right now. Do, do you think he was making a move on you right there? Yes, totally. Yes. Are you yeah. kidding me? I thought he was a sleaze bucket because <laughs> then we didn't really talk throughout the whole party. The whole night? Was he like giving you the eye from across the room? No, I, we, we were just doing our thing. Like yeah. I didn't really give it a second thought until like, you know, at the end of the night, I'm like sitting by myself just having a moment. And then he, then he comes up to me and he's. Cause you're that person, by the way. What? Who is at a big party and has a moment by themselves, like on the couch. For sure. And then he comes and sits <laughs> next to me and is like, he goes, well, what are you doing after this? It's like two in the morning. Like, what do you mean? What am I doing after this? I know what you're asking. Yeah. Yeah. Where are you going? And I was like, I don't know. I mean, I'm probably just going to go home. And he was like, well, you should, uh, you should go home with one of the cool guys at this party. (laughs) (laughs) And this is so dumb. And I said, uh, Oh my God. And I said, Oh yeah. Are there any? (laughs) And then you're going to love this because it's like two in the morning and it's dark. And he, he takes out his sunglasses and he puts them on. (laughs) And he goes, I don't know. You tell me. And I literally just turn around. The balls on this guy. He's amazing. The balls. And I was like, okay, whatever. This is happening. This- oh, no shit. Oh, yeah. There's no, I mean, why not? There's no point in my, there was no, at no point was I like, oh, I'm not going to take this guy home because this is hilarious. <laughs> and I literally just turned around. Still, he's in earshot. And I'm like, Andrew. And he's like, yeah. And I'm like, this guy wants me to go home with him. Am I safe? Yeah. And he was like, yeah, that's uh." You know, it was like, you guys should share an Uber or something. And I literally thought it was just like a silly. One night thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is amazing. Good for him. And then he, I actually had a date the next day. I had to no. kick him. I had to kick him out because I had a date to go to the Museum of Jurassic Technology with another guy. Oh, uh, how did that go? I broke, I broke up with that guy that, that like that week. <laughs> it was, a, I mean, it was good. It was, I mean, the Museum of Jurassic Technology is wonderful. My wife. Mm-hmm. I was living in Washington, D.C., mm-hmm. and I was actually dating a girl here in L.A., mm-hmm. wonderful woman, and I was scheduled to fly out here for Valentine's Day. Ooh. And I met my wife, mm-hmm. and I took her to lunch at the Hirshhorn, which is the museum in mm-hmm. D.C. I think it was like on a Wednesday or something. And then uh, that weekend I was supposed to fly out, and I canceled my flight. Like I drove to the airport in D.C. I was at the airport. I was at the gate, and I called the girl in L.A. It was like, I'm not coming. I'm so oh, sorry. Oh, Jason, that's so Garden State material. Yeah, it was so horrible. Like, I felt terrible, but I was like, no, I can't. when you know, you know. I said, I can't go. My par- When my parents met, they were both living with other people. And within a really? week, they left those people. Yeah. And they're still together. I turned around, I took, uh, and then I went and I took my wife out. I made her a meal. Like, it was so That's like, how you do it. I We, we <laughs> went out and I made her a meal. She was gone that weekend. And the next week she came back, I made her a meal. And like, we drove someplace and she got a flat tire and I had to fix a flat on the road. And it was like one of those things. It was just sort of crazy. But <laughs> those moments of like dating somebody in between dating somebody else, they're like really intense. It was, um, I, I had, a, I was in a weird moment with the, the funny thing was that I had, 
just got out of like an eight year relationship like a year and a half before. What do you mean just a year and a half before? That's a long fucking time. I don't think if for having been in a relationship for pretty much all of my twenties, I don't think a year and a half was a long time. The gap to be wasn't single. that long for you. I sowed my oats. That's I you sowed, did the year and a half enough. There's enough oats out there. <laughs> But that's the, why that's why the guy who put his shades on in the house. And I was like, these fucking oats. These oats. <laughs> these oats. Well, the fun I think it was like he was done. You know, we were both just kind of what, let's frankly is, inebriated and we're just he like, was like, this is all I got. <laughs> no, I think he he was done, like in his he was like, Oh no, I'm going to like be with this person or whatever. It people don't in my house, in my apartment when you walk in. If when you turn on the light switch, it's actually a disco light. There's not a regular light in the living room. That is so amazing. So that usually does it. <laughs> it's, I had this interesting uh, epiphany. It's actually the guy that I had a date with the next day. We'd been seeing each other for a couple months. Oh, so this wasn't like a first date. You had like a date with like an official dude you'd been seeing for a right. while. And the only reason why, and I remember the only reason the, uh, I took Sandy home is that I just had like one of those state of the union conversations with this guy. And, you know, he just, what do you mean state of the union combos? We just talk about like where your relationship is at. Cause we've been seeing each other for a couple of months. You need to know what was going on. I didn't care. But was it because of the Santi thing or what? No, not at all. This is before I met Santi, this guy. Uh, and I just had a conversation and he would just was sort of reiterating. He's like, Oh, I like you a lot. Blah, blah, we blah. We should turn that into a verb, by the way, the Santi thing. Santi thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> which is funny. We just had, and I was still getting used to dating and like what that means. Cause I know a lot changes in eight years. There was online dating wasn't a thing at all. The last time I was single right. and uh, ghosting wasn't a thing. You didn't date ghosts. Just wait, wait, what's ghosting? Ghosting is when you don't have the fortitude to break up with someone. So you just cut off contact, which is apparently how what? a lot of people break up these days. Are you serious? Yeah, it's terrifying. Oh, I had no idea. That's horrid. Yeah, it's really the, the, that sounds terrible. The rules are really muddy and people treat each other really awful. That has to turn stalkers. <laughs> yeah. Like people got to go stalking. <laughs> Yeah, it's not hard. Right? But I just had a conversation with this dude and it wasn't like romantic or great. He was just like, oh, things are going great. And, um, you know. With, with like the Bert Nooney voice? Just how he exists in my mind. That's the memory of him. He's like, you know, I'm not trying to like tie you down or say you can't see other people, but I'm just saying that I like you. I was like, okay, that's. That's so not That's so way romantic. And at the time, you know, I was living alone, which is exciting. I never lived alone before. And I was doing comedy like every night. And, uh, and writing during the day. Sounds exciting. Yeah. And I was so happy. And I remember being frustrated, just realizing I'm like, oh, I don't need this at all. Because the, the few times I had gone on dates, like, I, us I usually ended up having to like cancel a show. Like the weird relationship type thing. Yeah, I just didn't feel like dating at all. Right. I didn't want to. And I was like, this is dumb. I don't know why I'm forcing myself to do this just because I feel like I should. I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to cut things off like maybe next week. And I'm just going to keep like with this dude. Yeah. With this dude. I'm like, I'm just going to keep like doing comedy and going to open mics. And you're just like, I just ate a burrito like alone in bed last night. Like, why am I, my life is amazing. Like, why do I need, why am I actively trying to disrupt this? Well, sex, this routine. Well, yeah, but that can happen without dating someone. That is totally <laughs> Welcome true. Welcome to the 21st century, Jason. <laughs> <clears throat> so, What's funny is that I literally decided I was like I'm I'm going to sort of actively be single and and not and not date and I think I was like I'm just going to worry about it and I was like and I just assumed I was going to be on my own for like the next 5 years and then literally like 3 days later I met You met him. a dude He's a fucking asshole. Yeah, he's such a dick. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to cut all this out. We was 
We got so off track. Was there another? No, we're going to talk about stuff. You put your put your phone down. All right. You 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 want to? I like, do. I, I have one. I worry about. Well, this, this is your control freak shit. You need yeah, to the, find direction and in, the structure and. The, there's no structure in this shit. Okay. So you just have a conversation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one of the other things you have been on a. You've done a bunch of podcasts. I'm just a few comedy podcasts. Okay, but yeah. like, so what's what is a comedy podcast like consist of? Like, it how does that? The one I did, which was really strange, which was um, this woman who does her podcast in character, and so she. That sounds horrible, by the way. It turned out okay because the podcast is like 15 minutes long. Actors are so intense. They're bad people, Jason. They're horrible, horrible people. We are a compromised I'm sorry. Species. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Tell me what you're telling so me. So her, you know, they all have different things. Hers was that she, it's, it's her, she calls you. It's like you having a pretend phone conversation, but she acts like she's your mom and asks about like what you're doing out there in LA. It's cute. And I did one where these two comedian <laughs> girls get high and they read your fortune. Um, they read your destiny cards, um, which is cute. That was actually a pretty good one, but yeah. Everyone got a little too high, a little too drunk, is a little messy. And then I did a um, a really great one with just some dudes who- Like uh, having a combo. Yeah, it was just having a combo. But normally, you know, you get there was like four of us. So when you get like four comics having a conversation- Everybody's got a riff? Yeah, it's just riffing. And you rarely, I don't think in any of those <laughs> podcasts- did I really get to talk about like have a real conversation? Yeah, about, about my shit. about about yeah about even my comedy, let alone like my writing. Right. Yeah. So let's talk about your writing. Mm-hmm. Most most comedy people don't know that I wrote or write or that I did. Well, that. I, did I say this already? But I, I think I did. But like, it's obvious that you're a writer, and it's obvious that you keep it in your mm-hmm. repertoire. Like mm-hmm. you're you this is something that's important to you and you can see it like right away when you're doing the stage set and like how you put the bit together. So why, why is writing important to you? And why, why were you an art writer? Like talk to me about that. So that came about because after I left Biola university, I just had no real direction, but I knew that I wasn't, I needed to just start like living and surviving to figure it out. So I just moved out of my parents' house and I got a job at Fred Siegel through like, right. And Andrew gave you the job. Well, this happened because I started working at Fred Siegel and then from through Fred Siegel, I got an internship at uh, Flaunt Magazine. How what how the fuck did that happen? Because I mean, this is what's exciting, and I hadn't gone to school. You know what I mean? It was uh, someone that I worked with at Fred Siegel. Her boyfriend was the art director for Flaunt, and she was just like, you know, we were having this kind of like, what do you want to do conversation. She's like, oh, well, you seem funny. You're funny, and you seem smart. Like I could probably get you an internship at Flaunt. So that's how I started actually writing. Oh, and then Andrew got the job after you'd already been writing for Flaunt? No, I was writing for Flaunt and Andrew and I were neighbors. We were literally just next door right, neighbors. But and he gave, so I but was But you actually, had already been writing for a bit when Andrew yeah, offered been you writing. the art writing job. Yeah, I was writing about like movies and, and fashion and stuff like that for uh, this magazine. and For like a, a real publication. Yeah, and a couple websites. And not to be ungrateful, but I was just sort of complaining to Andrew, just feeling a little bit stuck because I'd always wanted to be a writer and I just had this like, okay, well, technically I am, I did it and I'm writing things for print, but this isn't fulfilling. So like what, I had to start focusing what that meant. Well, it's also a hole too. Like how the fuck do you get out of it? And he just said- Because it pays no money. Right. For those who don't know, writing pays (laughs) zero zero money. So that's why why I chose, um, you know, stand-up comedy and art writing. Just, I really want to go for the big buck. So I, I just was expressing to him my frustration with like what, the kind of work I was doing. And he just said, well, you should seriously consider writing about art because it's like, it's so much more interesting and it's very difficult and very fulfilling. 
we had this conversation and then we started just kind of going around to galleries and I was like tagging along and doing stuff together with him, with him. And then, you know, at the time I was going to community college at night to try and like finish school. Right. So then Why when, was that important to you? Um, that was just a personal thing. I think probably because of like my family, just family stuff. Yeah. It would have felt been, like it was needed. Yeah. I would have been like the first woman to finish college and just to like show that I could. So did you do it or not? Yeah, I did. I ended up transferring to UC Berkeley. And then right when I transferred, that's when Andrew gave me a job writing for Artslant. Um, right. Because he was, at the time, he was the West Coast editor. So he was supposed to be covering the Bay Area and Los Angeles. So he could give you a gig. Yeah, but he didn't really, he didn't know any writers in the Bay Area. So he just like, I became. So his. wait, you travel up there? Uh, no, I was going to, I got into UC Berkeley. So okay, so two, Berkeley. I'm sorry, yeah. sorry, sorry. So 2011, I moved to Berkeley. So you were already in Berkeley. So he needed like yeah. somebody there to like do shit. Yeah, so he you knew I was, like, he knew I was leaving and he was, knew that it would be a good opportunity. So I studied comparative literature at UC Berkeley. And then it also just like on the weekends or whenever I could, I just like went around to galleries. Wait, wait, wait. I, I, I have reviews. to ask, what's comparative literature? It's basically lit literature that's not confined to the English canon. It's a pretty loose term. Yeah, what is that? Like when usually comparative literature means like a second means you compare it to generally a secondary language. So you choose a language like, you know, I my concentration was in like French. Like write how writing compares to like in general subject matter or Yeah, like and you can and it's pretty self-directed. So comparative literature means you can focus on like a second language or you can focus on film or art and see do the comparison that way. And it's where you learn Comparative literature is where you get literary theory. That's where you read like Barth. And English literature is sort of a, a historical thing where you're reading like stuff from the English canon, right? Right. Well, that makes sense. From certain yes. yeah, and yeah, comparative yeah. literature is just much more conceptual and open, I think. So yours was French. Yeah. My emphasis was French. You speak French. Um, not much anymore, but the most exciting thing that happened was my grandmother got very disappointed in me because she said that like I started speaking Spanish with a French accent. That is amazing. Like, that's the coolest thing ever. That is so fucking I'm cool. So How do you sorry. do that? I don't know. That's fucking great. Thanks, Grandma. I do a pretty... The, but the only thing the French was good for is that now, like, I do a French, like, parody character. In your bit? Yeah. And, and or like... Or just day to day. I didn't know if this was your fake podcast or your boyfriend. No, I do have like, a... I mean, those videos you saw are, like, barely a quarter of, like, what I do. I have so much more material and characters and stuff. I could just have this resistance to putting all of it online because I don't want people to see it all. By the way, as you should be, I think me. with all art, people need to edit. Mm -hmm. And the people who don't edit, I mean, some people get by with uh, a good example for me. I was thinking about this the other day because I heard him do an interview. Ryan Adams, the musician, mm -hmm. that motherfucker can't edit anything. He puts, yeah. he's at, what is he on? He's like 11 or 12 albums so far. And half of those things are not good. Yeah. But he's a great musician he's like a sort of a fantastic artist yeah they're, they're, it's a different mode of operation some you, someone needs to edit him because it's just like he he, he will, can't do it himself he will never do it and it's like you know woody allen still makes a movie every year and they're like they've been horrible for a very long time you, well this is exactly you, just can't it. Stop. you really need to edit and part it and i've said this so many times one of the most amazing things is being able to be in the studio and make a ton of bad work so you can get to the good stuff and i have to imagine and this is one of the questions i was going <laughs> to ask you when you came on how do you get through, because obviously there's got to be bad fucking shit. Like you got to make bad work to get to the good stuff. So are you doing this in front of people? Like yes. all the bad stuff? I hate it. It pains me so much, especially the the process of writing standup is so different from the very private process of like composing an essay where you edit, you know, privately and the thing isn't out in the world until it's done. But stand up, there are some people who I, I 
who do sort of come write, you know, in a notebook at home and they just test it out. But I really think that the only way you have to write on stage, which means that. What is that? What is that? It means that if I have like a vague idea or a premise for something that might be a joke, I'm going to go to an open mic and kind of think out loud and play with it and and ramble about it on stage. And then after doing that, maybe four or five times, it'll turn into a joke. Absolutely horrible. (laughs) It sounds so. It's horrible, but it was so good for me. And this process has helped me so much as a writer because I am a perfectionist and I don't often let myself make the bad shit that you need to make. Be vulnerable, right? And also I realized that, you know, any good comedian, and I've seen many great comedians fail so miserably on stage, is that the big, the very freeing thing about that process is, um, you know, it's not, it's not the end of the world. Like I I do so badly on stage fairly often. I did like kind of crappy the other night. I had like a show yesterday that I don't think went very well. What was the reason? I didn't have a very good energy. I was tired. I was not excited to do it. I can see that could matter too. And the the audience can read it. Right. Because like I really am. And maybe if I'm like still struggling to do this in like five or 10 years, I'll feel differently. But I'm really like excited and super grateful like every single time. So here's a question on that. Because to me, it's fucking nuts that anyone would pay to come see somebody do that or what would yeah would would sit there even for free let alone like <laughs> pay money to watch me just do whatever for 10 minutes there used to be a comedy night at tex you realize that uh yeah i do did you yeah. ever see it yeah i saw it multiple times did you hate it sometimes yeah sometimes it was like right on point but that's why that's sort of what's exciting and that's why when that's, you hit a good one you hit a Really good one. That's like the excitement about like. So, but here's, here. Yeah. I have a question for you and mm-hmm. I'm sorry to interrupt, but if you know that you're in no shape to go up on stage and have this relationship with an audience, then mm-hmm. why, why do it? Because it's work. And I think part of being a good comedian, I mean, it's easy to do well and it's easy to make stuff and it's easy to be in the moment when you're in a good mood and you're feeling that flow. It's much harder to put in a good night's work on a bad day. That's really great. And answer. the few times that I've been able to do it where I've been in a really shitty mood and just out of it. And Horrible, not, right? I have found that if I just, there's even ways, even though like your material is pre-written, even though you have this thing in your head, you're going to say, there's a way of like being open about that and leaning into your headspace. Nine times out of 10, when I've gone in feeling shitty, I come out like 10 minutes later at the end of the set. Being okay. Feeling amazing. Yeah. That's where it becomes work. And that's like, I think the hallmark of a good comedian, anyone can be like funny and jazzy and on when you're feeling on, but to do it when you're feeling yeah. like a piece of shit. Here's the perfect example. I can never do it again because it was just, it was just a very particular moment. I had a show and Santi and I were fighting like on our way to the show. Like we were having a very horrible. real, real hard, horrible. We're having a very real argument. And we're still kind of like snicker, like kind of yelling as we're walking up to the venue. And I see a couple of my comedian friends and they kind of are about to wave and they kind of see that we're fighting and they read it. And I just make this motion. And Santi doesn't even come in the show. He kind of just like walks off. He's not into it. And I walk in. And as soon as I walk in, they're like, you're next. You got to go up. And I literally felt so, I was so upset. You know, I I think I have a very long emotional half-life. It's basically a forecast. So I was still riled up and I got on stage and I was just like, it's like, I can't, I'm like, I can't not talk about this. I'm like, because Chase, I'm like, you saw it and you saw it and you saw it. You're all sitting here. You yeah. Know they're what's all going sitting on. here. And I was like, I just had an argument with my boyfriend and 
I started just, and I, I just started talking about it. And I was like, you know, I'm like, and the, and the thing is like, I'm, I'm so pissed right now. And we were literally arguing about a Japanese abstract painter. And then as soon as I said that for some reason, <laughs> why is that funny? Everyone started Everybody laughing. broke out. Yeah, because, <laughs> and I guess it was funny because I was visibly emotional, but clearly the argument was ridiculous. Was ridiculous. So, but you know what's funny about it? Yeah. <laughs> We've all been there. Yeah. And you know, and I literally walked through this argument and I was like, because I'm like, I think, you know, and I have this idea about female abstract pain. They have no idea what I'm talking about. And it's like, and he thinks I'm just like shoehorning other people's work into this preconceived <laughs> notion I have about the gendering of modernity. But like, if you look at like the relationship between, you know, whatever Manet and Berth Morisot and like, they had no idea what I was talking about, but they were but rolling. They found it funny. Like they're rolling on funny. the floor. And afterwards someone was like, said, thank you. And he was like, that was a very interesting insight into your life and your relationship. Have you ever thought about repeating that bit? I don't think I, I don't think I can because part of it was well, the, the sincerity. Like it's I was real. Yeah. But also that's really funny. But I think for me, the lesson was that I can learn how to actually process whatever I'm, I think a good dealing comedian, with at the time. Yeah. I think a good comedian can also come into build the situation, up, build up that yeah. skill where they process their headspace in real time and that's actually even better than just saying, oh, I remember when I felt this way did this you, one time. Did you walk out of there and you're like, Sandy, fuck you. I did an amazing set. No, I walked out. <laughs> I walked out like not only did it go well, but I had like realized my own role in the argument. And I walked out like feeling awful. You're like a superpower. Feeling really good and feeling like, oh my gosh, this is so silly. Why are we fighting? Let me go. Let me go. Let me go make up and yeah, like, have a conversation. Go, totally. But that's sort of great. It is great. That's what's great about, you know, this whole Stupid so, thing. And, you know, and lately I've been feeling, a lot of people have been feeling really crappy. And so sometimes I just kind of go on stage and I process that for a couple minutes. Yeah, but it's nice. Like if, well, this is what we talked about. If you can have an honest conversation where people can relate and it mm -hmm. feels like very genuine, that's where people give up and sort of open up in a really interesting way that they wouldn't otherwise. Yeah. And I feel like all this talk about sincerity and connection and honestness is, and honesty is kind of what makes comedy like this inherently middle brow pursuit. And this is what makes it not performance art. People do get, can get challenged or learn something in the way, in a way, but that's not the, that's not job one. And so I, I don't know. I've had conversations with performance artists who, to me, that's terrifying. I, I Performance artists drive me nuts. Well, what's funny, we have these conversations where both, where we're both like, I can't do what you do. And they're just terrified because like the, 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 the input, the onus of entertaining people is terrifying. And I'm like, for me, having entertainment be the only criteria is so much simpler. Well, I, I, I need to correct myself. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to categorize all performance artists as being horrible. They're not. But you have a thing against performance art and live. Did you listen to my podcast the other day or something? <laughs> I do have a, I do have a thing against like performance yeah. art and I have a thing against actors and because uh -huh. I was doing that for a while. Yeah. Oh, you, you reek of it. You just have this like. Hate for. <laughs> no, you just like you, uh, it's, it's obvious that you have, that you're, you're a gregarious sort of, uh, well-spoken sociable. You have this super radio voice. Like, why wouldn't you hate those people? What? I don't even understand that. That makes no sense. Like, Because you're one of them. 
oh, because I hate the people. I hate myself. You, yeah, you like you hate. It's easier to see yeah. in others what like something in yourself. And I'm not, I'm not saying you hate yourself, but it's just like oh, that's annoying. It's so obvious. And <laughs> but what's funny, you. I remember you told me right after the show, you were like, just to prove your point that you had a good time. You're like, I was very pessimistic going into it. I, I was, told you that right yeah. away. Yeah. Ten people have told me that, and I'm like, what is it that? That, that everyone hates about comedy so much that they had such low expectations that people. Well, it's not just comedy. <laughs> it's like, and I will tell you this, and I told this, I, yeah. I've said this on other shows too. Like, and it's the same <laughs> with artwork. 90% is horrible. Mm -hmm. 90% is just downright bad. You might run into 15% that's pretty good. Yeah. And then the remainder of it is really fucking amazing. So you have to sit through all of the absolute mm -hmm. horrible stuff. But the problem with it is you can't get the fuck out of the room. Right. I just think I'm here to make sure the audience has a good time and the comedians have a good time. And that's very important to me. Sometimes even at the expense of me having a good time. And here's why I think people were saying this the other night and mm -hmm. why I said this the other night to you after I had mm -hmm. drank a ton of beers mm -hmm. and I was very open. Mm -hmm. You put together a really concise and thoughtful performance of all of your artists. Everybody that came in there was really, really good. Mm-hmm they were very considerate of their audience in a really nice way. They were each individually like completely different. Like what surprised me is you had two artists that were sort of bit driven mm -hmm. and like, not just bit driven, but like um, they were doing characters, but they also had objects. Props. They had props. Yeah. So they were like prop driven mm -hmm. and that shit can get old really quick. Yeah. No one expects that to be fun. No, <laughs> never ever. Right. Like yeah. nobody ever thinks that's going to be like a funny thing. Right. You had two people in your fucking set, like the balls of like having two like prop <laughs> character comedians, character comedians. Like I think they were like one right after each other too. Yeah. There was the, the cop and then the video and then the, and then the, 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 the woman, godmother. the fairy godmother, but it was just like, it was like, holy shit, this is going to be terrible. And then the fairy godmother came out and I was like, I don't think I can watch. I walked away for a little bit because I, I can't do this. Love and I, I came that. back and she was so good. And they were both so good. The other thing I was thinking about with this too, you have these performers. Mm -hmm. There are some really, really good people doing like really thoughtful, considerate shit. And even when they're prop driven or whatever the else are, and they're sort of slapsticker, they are so thoughtful and mm -hmm. considered and really work in the crowd hard. And even sometimes when I look at that, that sort of like the cop and your performance mm -hmm. with the slapstick and everything else, that stuff's really worked out. Like he has gone over that and he's very like yeah. on point with that. And it's so hard to do that. Well, that's why it seemed sort of fun and off the cuff. Cause it was so, he was so comfortable. He's so comfortable. But that's, that's sort of me. That's like my, like not just perfectionist, but like my artist consideration coming through. Like I, I, I find that that show I consider almost like, you did such a good job. Thank you. You did such a fucking good job. I've, I was talking to my best friend. She's like, oh, I consider the show like kind of like to me, like that's your practice. She's like, and I know that it is just a comedy show, but she's like, I also know so much about how who you is, work. Who is a woman on after you? The right. One. Directly right after you. The first one was Jamie Loftus. And yeah. she was hilarious, but yeah. it was super uncomfortable to begin with. <laughs> it was so uncomfortable. Yeah. But she like at the end of her bit. It's a fine line. Yeah. Yeah, she had the crowd like lit up. But I mean, it's that control. Like, I think the, the funnest thing for me is going off, losing the crowd for just like 30 seconds and then bringing them back. So just they know that I'm in control. Well, you had, I felt like you did your bit. So you did up and you did a 
you Yeah, I did a stand-up set. Yeah, set. Nothing crazy, just like stand-up. No, but it was good. It Thank was you. really tight. Like it felt it was really funny and I was also surprised that it was that fucking good because I thought that you just you haven't been doing this for very long. Mm-mm. So to me it was like god, this is like on point. The whole show was like one of the best shows I've ever seen for comedy. Thank but, you. That means a lot. Yeah, it was really, really fucking good. So you gave this thing, and then your your second person came out, mm-hmm. and she was like in the beginning, like the laughs weren't there. Yeah, but she built it up into a thing. By mm-hmm. the time she was gone, the crowd was like with her a hundred and ten percent. It was just sort of amazing to watch that sort of progress. Yeah, the dynamic. I find that things that are self consciously art comedy tend to be neither one. I choose comedy, like and because no matter as you should. It's, it's informed by everything I else I do. Um, and it's informed by the fact that I just like, I look at art a lot and I think about art a lot. It's uh, it's me. It's very freeing and how simple it is. Like I really just, it's complicated and that obviously it was a complicated show to put together. I don't know how obvious that is, but no, it wasn't, but that's, what's great about it. It didn't look like it was complicated, <laughs> but you made it gel. Yeah. I've been in that situation and you made it seem seamless in a really, in a crazy space too. Yeah. And I obsess over, you know, and I obsess over that that flow and that order and those particular people. I think about uh, obsessively. The energy is so important and having not control, but not exhausting people. And that, the reason why the show is short, because it's pretty overwhelming. It's not just a line of comedians coming up to the microphone and saying jokes. No, not at all. Like you have these spaces and these like breaths of like. Yeah. So wait. Let's go into this. I want to talk about your cash for biz. Oh, ex- cash for experience dot biz. <laughs> like, this is what I love about it. This is what I love about comedy. That's not writing is so many of my jokes or things that I like are these kind of metaphors or turns of phrase that's or premises that completely fall apart once you interrogate them too much. And that's why that's what I like about them. They're okay. Not, so it doesn't make sense. What was funny to me, <laughs> partly uh, what was funny to me about this. Oh, we should explain. This is like a fake commercial that's screened in the middle of my show. Yeah. So in the middle of your show. But like what I was going to say was mm-hmm. you walked out, you'd, you'd done a set or mm-hmm. like there was a break in the middle of the thing. And I yeah. was like, oh, I didn't tell you this. Like <laughs> I had gotten a seat. Like I, I thought I got like a prime seat at the end of a row, like mm-hmm. up top. I didn't have to fucking easy, deal with anybody. Easy escape access. Fucking easy escape. Right. And before the show even started, I gave it to like a girl sitting, like standing up because mm-hmm. I was like, I can't deal with this. I don't want to be trapped. I don't want to look like I'm like walking out of this place. Somebody had mentioned, oh, was it you who mentioned the fucking light of the phones? Oh, yeah. That I, I said That this. is a great comment. What What is this? I said that, um, you know, by the way, if you're, because the lighting in that space is a little odd. So you can see the audience oh, pretty fuck well. Oh, yes. So that's why I was like, you know, by the way, like when you're on, if you're on your phone, like I can see you and we internalize that. So <laughs> like, please don't be <laughs> on your cra- phone. If the crowd like just died because it's true. <laughs> you yeah. can totally feel like, like the performance. I'm, I'm only asking for one hour of your time and I it really do have your best. Down, I, 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 this is not performance art. I'm not here to challenge you. I'm here to really make you have a good time. So just give me this one fucking hour that you, it. That, all that you paid for. <laughs> so I got up and I was like, I can't, Yeah, I can't sit here. Great. I I, lo- I just, I love how, I love how ready you were to like. Get be- the fuck out. Yeah, yeah. no, exactly. So I, mean, I was like on the outside of the curtain. I don't know if I posted an image of you like yeah. talking. Through the curtain. Yeah. But it was like on the outside of this curtain, like on the outside. And so the entire night I stood there on the outside of this curtain. Mm-hmm. So long story short or not. Um, 
you got done with the bit and you walked out and I was like, Hey, I just wanted to tell you it was like so good. And you were like, you were really focused. You were like, Hey, I made this video that's up on the screen right now. You should go look at that. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, um, okay, great. She goes, that's what I made. Like, go look at that. So like I went back and I watched it. It was hilarious. Thank you. And I had everybody in stitches and it, I went back and I watched it again and I didn't tell you this at the time too. I remember thinking to myself, like, I wish I had a copy of this so I could go back and like rewatch it. And then you I put tell, it online. It, you put it online. And I went back and rewatch it again. It's mm-hmm. just as funny. The thing that catches me about it though, is that you don't get how funny it is until half a minute or a minute into the thing. Yeah. I, I've because had people it, tell me that that's sort of characteristic of me in general and maybe just because of the way I talk. And I think the reason it worked in the space immediately was because you were already like, you got you in a really sort of interesting way. And for me, like it took a bit to figure out that you were this sort of proprietor. No, but like <laughs> even no. And I mean, you, you played like sort of a, a dodo in the, in the fucking video and yeah. it was like really, really funny, but like smart, you get the fact that the person behind the sort of persona is like this smart person. Well, it was kind of improvised and that's why there was this odd uh, It's so fucking funny. There's this odd uh, rhythm to it because I'm kind of trying to think as I'm talking because I'm like I don't know what I'm saying. I'm I'm just going to lean into that energy. I gotta tell you, out of all the performances and all of the things that like Uh you have done, this felt the most natural to me in a way that like Funny, that's good to know. You were like you felt like you were just like on it. Like in, in that a, video? Yeah, you had yeah. like a fake fucking mustache on. Yeah. And the mustache fell, <laughs> fell off, off at one point and like the stagehand came over and like put it fucking back on your face. And it was so fucking funny. It was just like you were on. Like it was like the whole thing felt like one of your bits. Yeah. Like uh, uh, we did that like in one take. I think we did a second one for safety, but then the guy, the editor, it was director on, was like, dude. It was really you. fucking on. Like I was super like impressed. Like so. I feel like whatever I do and whatever we do for this podcast or whatever else, mm-hmm. we got to give a link to that because it was so oh, we fucking will. good. And I would just sit, I, I would say that I think what's very freeing to me about having these two sides of, I mean, to me, it's all writing. It's all words. It's just that in comedy, it, it just exists in this performance space. It's none of it's written down. And I remember I actually six months into like doing comedy, meaning like going to open mics every night. I called my best friend having like an existential freak out. I was like, what am I doing? Like I left my job. Like the why type thing? Just the just what feeling like I wasn't doing anything. Like it Living up to a potential or something or what? Just I wasn't sure what this work was. Like, I, like it doesn't exist. It's this thing like I do this every night and there's almost like nothing to show for it. And, you know, I wasn't uh, when I obviously during that year, I was like concentrating a lot on comedy and not writing as much. Right. I just was literally like, I don't I don't know what I'm doing. And it was the first time since high school that I really like leaned into being a performer and an artist. And she said, she made a good point. She was like, well, it's like, I know it's a different process for you because it's not publishing and it's not writing on paper. And it's not this thing, this process that has like a definite end that you put a product out in the world. She goes, what you're doing is like very big and abstract. It's open-ended. She's like, and it's kind of ephemeral and it's open-ended. She's like, but I promise it's real. And that like people see it and it exists. It's true. It's absolutely true. <laughs> It is completely obvious that you put the time in to doing the work. The set stands up. I'm just very thankful that you invited me the other night and that you've come on the show. I'm so glad you came. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you so much. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, goodbye. Bye-bye.